The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. And welcome back to the Ghostlight Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by conductor Jim Lau. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. It's great to, to have you. Oh, it's good to have you. You're here in Utah with us as we record, putting together a production of The Little Prince, Rachel Portman's Little Prince. And I know that you've had a long history with this piece. You were uh, involved with the workshopping and the premiere performance. I think you conducted it, right? That's right. Yeah, in, yeah. In, at the Houston Grand Opera. So tell us a little bit about that and tell us how you think this work has evolved over its relatively short life. I think it premiered in 2003. 2003. Yeah, yeah that's and, right. And so and tell it, us about that. Well, being involved in the premiere was incredible, you yeah. know, to, to see uh, Rachel putting it together and she was with us uh god for weeks right. five weeks or so uh, as we put the whole thing together and francesca zambello who directed the original and uh nicholas wright who wrote the book the and libretto, the libretto. Right. and um yeah just to be involved with all of them to watch it evolve and you know rachel is a wonderful uh composer and what's so great about her of course is as you know she's a film composer so she's used right. to making changes on the fly and working very quickly so mm-hmm. she could go away and come back with with adjustments and new scenes. For example, uh, with the young boy that we had, you know, there were certain things that were easier for him or harder for him. So she was constantly making changes to his line to help accommodate him. Sure. And then of course she would have to maybe change things in the orchestra to, to go along with that. Um, I remember that the King scene uh, was in a different key when she first wrote it and it didn't fit as well for the singer. And so we, we, uh, she, not we, uh, she changed that. I had <laughs> yeah. nothing to do with it. Um, she changed that key. Uh, so there are a lot of, a lot of slight changes that happened in the process. And then, as you say, the evolution of the piece since it's been done, uh, there's actually one more character in the book that uh, was in the original opera that is no longer in the opera, and that is the planet of the geographer, right? Uh, which has, uh, over the years, disappeared from the, from the piece. We did it in Houston at the premiere, and uh, we did it the second time around. We still had the geographer. What's the reason um, for the removal? Is it just a bridge too far? Is it just yeah, didn't I think, really well, serve Well, originally, uh, Saint-Exupéry's uh, nephew was mm-hmm. very involved in the opera, uh-huh. and there was a mandate to be... Uh, very explicit to be very correct to the book true to the book and um and it made the most sense that the geographer is the one who tells the prince to go to earth because he's a geographer and he would know about it however there's an interesting thing that happens at the end of the lamplighter scene where the lamplighter talks well uh, i'm sorry i should actually say there's an interesting thing that happens after the geographer when the prince gets to earth, he sees all the lamps being right. lit. Right. So from a dramaturgical standpoint, it actually makes more sense for the lamplighter then to bridge into earth where he's talking about lighting his lamp and then the prince goes to earth and everyone is lighting. Oh, that's lamps. interesting. Yeah. And so there was a long discussion, even at the premiere of could that be, could the geographer be cut so that the lamplighter sent him to earth? Right. So the thought was already in motion in the original, but it wasn't allowed because of the estate and they wanted it to be very specific. And I think once it moved away from that, I think everyone kind of said, you know, it is a little tighter dramaturgically and yeah, it might be one planet too many just as you're watching it from the stage. It's a shame because I really like the geographer scene. Nobody sees it anymore and it's really fun. It's really cute. Uh, He has a scratchy pen that he writes with, which is represented by a scratchy violin. Oh yeah. Um, So it's a, it's a, it's a nice scene, but, uh, I, I think it's probably right. 
yeah. from, a, from the flow. The standpoint. piece had kind of made the decision for itself. And, yeah. 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 You know, you slipped and said we before when you were talking about the changes <laughs> being made. And I'm not surprised about that because I'm sure you feel like you wrote this piece. You've been with it so long. But what, what new I things wish. are you hoping to mine from it with the Utah performances? I mean, do you still experience new things when you do? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the, the main difference here is that the production is completely new. And right. so I have never seen it in a different production. I'm not sure there have been any others, maybe one or two, yeah. the, the fact that this is a completely new conception right. um, really uh, opened my eyes to it. And I was very excited. When I, my first thought when Christopher called me was, oh, I, wow, yeah. a new production. Right. And then I got very excited and I started thinking, this is going to be great. And Tara Faircloth, who directed it, um, has... There, I don't want to give away the ending, but there is a moment at the very end that I had never seen before. I'd never seen a director uh, come up with, and I, I think it's kind of brilliant. What happens at the very, very end? And it's, it's moving to me to see it evolve that way. But also, we have a really wonderful children's chorus here yeah. in Utah. And, we are uh, very proud to have oh, them in town. Oh, they're fantastic. We're talking and about so, the Madeline Choir School, one of the yeah, greatest in the country. They're, they're amazing. Yeah. I've, I've never seen, uh, heard a choir uh, do this piece like this. And just their attention to detail mm-hmm. and being able to change things and fix things. Sure. Uh, there's a scene in the second act that's one of my favorites, uh, the walk to the, to the well, walk through the desert, that is incredibly delicate and quiet and very hard for the kids' chorus. You know, they're singing in parts, the rhythms are very difficult, and it's very delicate. great to be able to get it to the level that these kids do it, to be able to really find that, uh, that kind of pureness and uh, purity and that delicacy that, that is hard to achieve. I'm glad you brought up the kids because having kids perform in grand opera is something that is relatively new given the history, the long history of this art form. It's something that's only been, I mean, really happen, been happening on a regular basis since them all. I mean, it's just... And from a soloist. Exactly. Yeah. From Before that, it was mezzos and pants rolls, you yeah. know? And yeah. so, I mean, I wanted to know from your perspective, since you've done a lot more than just Little Prince, what's it like working with children in solo roles? I mean, do you have to change your approach to the way you're not not teaching the piece, but certainly directing it to the cast when there's a kid involved? How does it, how do you have to morph your style when Strangely there's a little enough, person? kids always surprise me and they're always smarter than I think they're going to be. <laughs> well, that's, I think that's so, generally true for all of us. <laughs> every time I do this piece or any other piece with kids, I yeah. always come away going, yeah. He he was smarter. She was smarter than I yeah. than I expected. And um, you know they tend to not let other things get in the way of their brains. They right. don't have the same level of insecurities that adults have. They don't have all the baggage that adults have. Yeah. So so and and I will say the little prince is not an easy role. He no. sings all the time. He's on stage all the time. Right. He's got music that changes meter and that. Uh, goes up and down ranges that the harmonies are not easy. And, um, every time I've done this, I come away thinking, you know, I don't know, they just learn it and then they just, it's in their body. And the other night in a rehearsal with the orchestra, they were on the stage, which means they're quite far from me and there's an orchestra and Ty may, he is our little prince. He, 
he made a little mistake and I held my hand up. And as soon as he made the mistake, he looked down at me and I held my hand up and I pointed and he got himself right back on within a half of a measure, Wow! you know, and I know adults that don't do that on a regular basis, you know, and he just, he was aware he was in the yeah. moment. He was aware of his surroundings and he heard that he was wrong and he fixed it instantly. No one would have ever known. It's probably like watching a kid learn a foreign language. It's just so much yeah. easier for them than it is for us. Yeah. Our brains are just too shut down to new things, but they're just wide open. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I want to talk a little bit about you because, um, you know, in reading your your bio and your personal musical history, I, I have to say that opera doesn't quite cover it. You've done a lot <laughs> of things, including playing keyboards with bands throughout your career. You've played with rock bands, jazz bands, country bands. Yeah. You've done it all. You've really <laughs> done it all. And I want to know how those experiences have informed your conducting. Is there, I mean, are there parallels for example, uh, not to be too cheeky, but between the rock and roll front man and the opera diva, I mean, is it just too good not to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, probably the reason I, I stopped playing in the band is I wasn't a diva enough. I don't know. But um, but then again, I became a conductor. So what's more... what's what's more? Uh, you said it, Jim, diva? not me. Yeah, what's more diva-like than that? I don't know. One of the bands that I played in for the longest period, uh, the guys in the band used to call me General Jim. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, mm-hmm. I, that probably foreshadowed a conducting career. So Certainly. Because I was always the one that kind of organized it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when we were practicing, I would put together like, hey, we need to work on this or yeah. let's let's practice these songs and let's work on this part. And I was generally, I didn't write all the songs. Uh, I had a, a partner, a guitarist, that that he and I wrote most of the songs together. Um, but I was usually the arranger, yeah. meaning he would come in with these fantastic ideas and then I would kind of put them together. So I've always had that kind of put it together kind of thing. You've always been the ringmaster. Yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah. And um, like I said, I, I probably drove them nuts. I think it was not necessarily always a good thing. I'm sure they needed you. But but when you're a conductor, you get to do that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Well, I'm sure those experiences, do you get to do that anymore? I mean, or, or is Not so much. I mean, busy? I do a lot of, I miss it. Yeah. Like crazy. I miss it every day. You know, I miss um, this. The one band that I played with the most was this group called Backwash. And mm-hmm. these were incredible musicians, uh, a drummer, a bass player, and a guitarist, uh, and myself. And, uh, it, we had so much fun and we, uh, I, I mean, I miss it like crazy. I yeah. will say that, uh, I also, in addition to doing opera, I do a lot of Broadway. Right. So sometimes I get, you know, a different style of music involved, sure. um, sure. which is very natural for me because of my background and stuff. But no, I don't get to play in like, uh, a hard rock band right. anymore. I had a reunion with a band of mine. Uh, I mean, this was probably six or seven years ago, which was tons of fun. That was a, a different band. Uh, we got back together and played for several days. Um, and by the end of it, we were fighting just like we used to. So it was, it was great. <laughs> Did they give you a hard time for being an opera conductor now? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think sure. they're very confused. But I will say the drummer <laughs> the drummer of Backwash is now like a crew member on that on The Deadliest Catch. No on kidding. The TV show. Yeah, like we've all gone on to do completely different bizarre things. I would One say. of the guys is a music teacher. Yeah. You know, so we've all gone on to be doing, to, to do completely opposite things, but he's the one out there on a, on a boat in Alaska. Which Deadliest catch is, and opera conducting. Those yeah. probably do define the word opposite. <laughs> I don't know. That so you I can think get he's having more. more fun. Yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. Let's, let's circle back to opera though, because I know you probably like most conductors travel a lot. You're all over the world doing this stuff. And I wonder in your opinion, what do you think the state of opera is right now in the 20th century? What what gives you pause? What gives you hope? What are you seeing out there? Well, what gives me hope is the amount of new work that's being done right now. Yeah. I mean, this is probably the most fertile time for composers, for uh, 
I mean, if you just look at the seasons of American opera companies right now, it's it's amazing how much new work. Um, I know uh, here in Utah, was it last year you did Moby Dick? Yeah, uh, that's right. I know that that there's you know constant. Just as a matter of course, you look at an, at an opera company schedule and you'll see operas that are written in the last year, the last five years, the last right. 10 years. Right. And that's amazing. And it, and it wasn't always that way. Right. Um, you know, we, we've had our ups and downs in the American opera scene as far as what periods are fertile. And, um, but I would say that, that uh, that's the most exciting thing is that new work is being created. And many opera companies have told me things like they sell more tickets for the new works than they do for, you know, Puccini or Mozart. Well, from is, from your lips, I hope that that continues. It's incredible, to be, yeah. Because people, people, um, because the downside, you know, you talk about what gives me pause. The yeah. downside is that opera also has the danger of fading. You know, young people don't grow up with it. Right. They don't necessarily say, oh, they're doing La Boheme, I don't want to miss La Boheme. Right, right. They, a lot of them don't know what La Boheme is, which is astonishing because it, for so long it was such a staple, right? Sure, um, sure. And, and obviously it still is, but, uh, but when, you, when you talk about things to younger people, they don't necessarily, it's not a default for them. They right. don't just automatically go to a classic work like that. So that's a challenge. It is. And I think the danger, there are many opera companies that are only sticking with that. And I think that they're going to have a harder time if you're only doing, uh, you know, Traviata, Mm -hmm. Rigoletto, Mm -hmm. and uh, Figaro and Bohème, right? If you stick with those. But what's interesting is that younger people, though, they don't have the prejudice against the new works. That's a good point. So they yeah. come in and they say, well, this looks like a more exciting, interesting thing. And sure. so you'll have some work that somehow uh, makes them excited. And that's what I mean when I say I've heard uh, directors of companies say, you know, we sold more tickets for, uh, you know, the long walk right. or whatever right. the work is that is that is not because the story speaks to them. Do you think the subject matter is important? I mean, something based on a book they might have actually read and not, yeah, a, not a 17th absolutely. century French novel. I mean, do you think that plays a part of it? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest success stories of the last, I don't know, I guess I would say the last 20 years would be Dead Man Walking, right. which was written by Jake Heggie, who wrote Moby Dick, right. which you did last year. Right. And um, I mean, that is a perfect example of something that People had read the book, they had seen the movie, they mm-hmm. knew about Sister Helen Prejean, they knew about what was what that story was about. Right. And uh, when San Francisco did it, did the premiere, I mean, they I don't think they could print enough tickets, yeah. right? It it became one of their biggest one of their biggest hits. And of course it launched Jake's career as a composer. And um and it did kind of set off this this idea of writing new opera that related to current events. Right. Um uh, obviously, Moby Dick is not one of those, but I will say Jake has earned the right to write a Moby Dick, right? I, Jake, I by now, so. has yeah. written enough contemporary works that that he he thought, well, this is a a piece that that speaks to him. But so many of these new pieces are about they're not period pieces, they're not historical, they're not literary. They're more about uh, you know the wars that were involved in the politics that were involved in these they're kind topical. of things. Yeah. They're topical, yeah, and yeah. and uh, people. People find themselves, or, or social uh, issues, and people find themselves really uh, connected to that. Yeah. Well, you're a great guest, Jim, because you've led me right into the next thing I want to ask you, <laughs> which I ask every opera person I get on this podcast. And by the way, Gene and and Jake were on the show. We had a oh, great conversation great. when yeah. we did when we did Moby Dick. But I asked them this question, and I'm going to ask you now. 
in terms of topics, in terms of subjects, is there an untapped one, like real or imagined historical <laughs> contemporary? Is there something that you think really needs to be made into an opera that hasn't yet? Yeah, I have one, but I'm not going to tell you because I want to write it. Uh, um, I, actually, I do. Um, yeah. uh, but um, And it is topical. But I, I think what's, what's happening now is that the, uh, the stories that are being told... Um, there's there's one that's happening this summer at Glimmerglass. Mm -hmm. I'll be I'll be working at Glimmerglass this summer, and uh, I'm not conducting this piece, but they're doing uh, an opera by Janine Tesori, who wrote uh, a lot of Broadway shows, right. and uh, she's writing an opera called Blue. And I don't I, I I haven't seen it yet. It's a premiere, but my understanding of the piece is that it has to do with um, with racial issues and police issues uh, police that, shootings that and kind of blue okay. yes mm -hmm. so blue meaning the police officers right. and and so it's a very heavy yeah. topical you know hot button kind of issue but also a very sure. personal issue and i think what the other thing that's that's brilliant about her writing is that she's not a traditional opera composer she brings with her you know she's written everything from fun home to shrek uh, to another yeah. opera that i just did last year of hers um so she's written a lot of serious music but also a lot of a lot of show music, and she's so versatile, and she can bring all these levels to it. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I, I think that's where I see people going, is writing music that, the music that has maybe not just atonal music, not just what we'd call traditionally operatic, but maybe brings pop music, maybe brings, you know, rhythm into it in a way that it hasn't been, and maybe bringing uh, chorus, so I would imagine there's going to be a lot of yeah. great choral writing. So anyway, in terms of specific subjects, I mean, for me, what I always think is great are subjects that deal with personal relationships mm -hmm. and people, and with what's going on in the world, it's like these issues, but how do they relate to the people, Sure, right? Which was, of course, Dead Man's success, is for that, sure. it, of course, you know, the death penalty is a big, a big issue, but that piece dealt with the humans involved, specific right. people. Right. I'm actually not kidding you. There is something that I would like to to write and get done and work on. Yeah. Uh, and it is exactly that. It's something that deals with, with uh, very contemporary issues, but from a personal standpoint, right. how it affects one person or two people or their families, right. you know, humans, um, rather than just being some large political type of piece. Well, that's, you know? I mean, that's opera. So. That's macro made micro yeah, and then yeah, into a exactly new kind it. of macro. That's yeah. basically what opera is. Well, I'll be watching you because I'm very interested. <laughs> now that I've said see. it, I have to do And it. knowing <laughs> your background, knowing the kind of different influences you'll probably mix into the score, I'm really, really fascinated. But I don't want to follow up something so serious with something so silly, but we do have a tradition on the show. I ask everyone this question because your world has you in theaters and most of them are haunted. So based on our name, I'm yeah. curious... Jim, have you ever seen a ghost in I your life? I don't think I have. I, I'm sorry to disappoint. I'll let me think about this, <laughs> if I've ever seen a ghost. Um, you know, I I was a couple years ago, um, there's a little opera company in a town called Watsika, Illinois, and okay. Watsika has a haunted house. They're okay. very famous. In fact, if you look up uh, uh, the, one of those TV shows like Ghost Hunters yeah. or uh, yeah. whatever, whatever, they spent a lot of time in the in the house called the Watsika Wonder. And there's okay. a whole story about this. And uh, the house uh, was purchased by 
a person involved with the opera there. Uh-huh. And so he took us all there one night, late at night. We went down into the basement and stood there. And I have to say, I was as terrified as I've ever been. We did not see a ghost, but if I ever believed there might be one, that yeah. was the moment. Because you... they told us all the stories about sure. the history of the daughter that lived in the house and what happened to her and how mm-hmm. they, they think she's still around. And uh, my imagination just went crazy. I'm so, sure. Yeah. So you've never actually seen a ghost, but you have definitely had one standing next to you. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure this girl <laughs> I can't remember her name, but uh, whoever lived there in Watsika, I yeah. think she was there. Well, there's no ghost in the Little Prince, <laughs> and we're really looking forward to what you do with that. Thank you so much for coming to Utah, and sure thank thing. you, Jim, for being a guest on the Ghost Light Podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having Great me. Great to have you. The Ghost Light Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. 